0: Welcome to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and 90.7 FM, KRDP. Later in the show, Callie Turner will tell us about her career as a writer, producer, and puppeteer. And we'll listen to Brad Callimer's journey as a multimedia artist and musician. But right now, host Lanasha Puati talks with Tony Stenger-McLaughlin, CEO of Native American Agriculture Fund.
1: Tony Stanger McLaughlin is the CEO of the Native American Agriculture Fund. Welcome to our show, Tony. Thank you for having us. First, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my
2: name is Tony Stanger McLaughlin, and I am a citizen of the Colville Confederated Tribes located in eastern Washington state and a descendant of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, the Spokane Tribe, the Coeur d'Alene Tribe, and the Kalispell Tribe. And I am married to my husband of almost 15 years, who is enrolled Navajo. And we raise our children in Spokane, Washington.
1: Oh, wow. It's a pleasure to have you today. And can you tell us more about what is the Native American Agriculture Fund?
2: The Native American Agriculture Fund is a derivative, it's derived from a class action that was started in North Dakota and grew to become a national class action for Native American farmers and ranchers who, under the class certification, alleged violations of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. and In summary, they were denied access to credit and did not receive proper credit servicing. The culmination of the case was in the settlement agreement occurred in 2010. And there was at the time no way to know how many Native American producers would apply to be part of the class or part of the claims process. And ultimately there was a significant amount of money left over in the Cypre fund. And after multiple years of continued litigation, they ultimately allowed the leftover funds to become a trust, and that is what the Native American Agriculture Fund is. And our sole purpose is to support Native American producers and reduce the initial harms of those claimants that started this case. So much of our focus is in providing access to credit, credit servicing, new forms of credit opportunities, credit education to our producers and expanding their opportunities, not only in the private sector, but in, in accessing proper servicing and federal funding as well.
1: Do you know how many producers you currently fund? I don't know
2: the exact number of producers because we also do are uh, the funds that we provide, they do scholarships, they do uh, curriculum development, uh, we fund CDFIs, which are essentially rural bankers. <laughs> so it's not that ultimately right now we have uh, over 300 grantees. Uh, and if you visit our website, you can see our former reports. And in our reporting, you can see some of the uh, projects that we've been able to fund, and the types of entities, but we're in the thousands. We did COVID rapid response funding, and, and just in that, that, that was a smaller uh, RFA, and that alone served thousands of families, and, and we were able to make sure that the producers in those regions were able to sell their food locally during uh, the pandemic. But uh, we have all that information on our website, and you will be able to see the amazing work that our grantees are doing. Our four eligible grantees are community financial development institutions, CDFIs, which, again, are lending entities from the Department of Treasury. We also fund educational organizations, including elementary all the way through college and as in and also vocational education we fund nonprofits and we fund tribes including state recognized tribes and the work that those entities do supports their communities some of those projects are nationally based but ultimately the work has to provide some type of servicing to native americans uh, and we also fund alaska natives and native hawaiians
1: Oh, wow. That is amazing. And um, do you have any upcoming opportunities for the 2022 request for applications?
2: Yeah, we're right there. So our application period ended yesterday for our youth grant. And we, our other grant, our general grant that we do annually, which we launch on April 1st, is closing on, ju- on June 1st. It's right around the corner. But beyond grant making, Throughout the year, NAFTA's educational opportunities webinars, we uh, host convenings and listening sessions and roundtables. So please visit our website and join our listserv where you will have an opportunity to hear about those. As our calendar progresses throughout the year, we try to focus on the needs of our producers and, their, and the communities that they serve.
1: And can you share with us any success stories that you have with any of your grantees?
2: We have so many successful grant stories and we're finally in a place where we can travel and we're doing a number of grantee site visits and those site visits have been incredible. But even without the ability to travel directly to our grantees, we have had uh, success stories and we're getting ready to provide some highlights on our website. And ultimately our grantees will have essentially their own websites within our website where they can share their own stories and they can offer updates and opportunities in their communities. Our grant projects are 12, 18 and 24 month projects but because of COVID we have had a number of them that because their communities were shut down have had to extend their grant period. But even throughout COVID, we've allowed our grantees to pivot, to listen to the needs of their community and adapt their original goals. So right away, we knew that they couldn't do in-person sessions. And so a lot of them pivoted, and we allowed all of our grantees during COVID to have access to a Zoom account and access to a laptop computer so we could further assist them in making those adjustments but some of our our projects include the amount of money that we've been able to provide to CDFIs that directly has been able to go to many producers. And in a lot of instances, in the foundation of the Key Siegel case, a lot of the original producers didn't have credit education. They they weren't, um, in the eyes of general lending, credit worthy. And our CDFIs are able to do some credit Uh, rebuilding with our grantees and get them to a point where they don't have to, they can go anywhere. They can go to any lending body and receive funding and also understand risk associated with being engaged in agricultural production. But one of the projects that I thought was really innovative was out of Montana and we fund hemp feasibility studies And one of our first projects in that space included a tribe who noticed that a lot of municipalities and even states were banning plastic one-time-use cutlery, and they have already been engaged in hemp production through the 2014 Farm Bill, which allowed them to do that with a university. And now that tribes have the authority to produce hemp they wanted the ability to create a hemp production facility where they could create hemp cutlery that is more environmentally friendly. And that just thinking outside of the box, thinking I'm in rural Montana uh, tribe that has the hopes to be able to reduce plastic and grow a product that, it, that in their community they've already been in this space Um, So that's just exciting and very innovative. We funded aquaponics. We funded a project in Oklahoma. We funded a project in Arizona where uh, we have funded quite a few projects where the youth become the the principals on the project. They're invested in these projects, and some of them are business-based. So two of those are one is in Arizona where FFA students are growing fodder, which is a less water-intensive feed for cattle, and uh, it it grows quickly, and it's very nutrient-dense. And so a lot of our our projects are based on, on adapting to climate issues and conservation needs. That was one example where the youth are taking the lead. Another one was in California, where one of the traditional foods is acorns, and the youth in an elementary school were out there and they were gathering the acorns and then they created an, a healthy acorn bite and they learned about the business side of bringing your raw product to production and the costs associated with that so we're teaching our youth at a very young age how to become young entrepreneurs but also how to be credit smart as they move into adulthood.
1: Oh, that is great! Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that, Tony. That sounds like you guys were able to um, to fund a lot of different people, and they were able to learn a lot from those experiences as well.
2: Many of the Native American producers in the United States, the when in the twenty seventeen, which is our most agri- recent agricultural census data, a majority of our producers are in the cow calf space. Um, so we fund general agricultural production in that area, um, our, our grantees do, and they're eligible entities. And we fund, we also fund traditional foods, we fund, we have funded bi- work in bison, work for, with salmon, but we broadly define agriculture. And so that it includes seafood, it inclu- and it also includes forestry.
1: And Callie, how can someone learn more about the Native American Agriculture Fund and how can they contact you if they have further questions?
2: We have a website, www.nativeamericanagriculturefund.org, where you can find all of our funding opportunities and our current opportunities for education. Our partner organizations and the work that they're doing, webinars are their open funding applications. Um, we are, we list and attach some of that information in our newsletters, but a majority of our, uh, information, including our grantees, including, uh, future notices of funding opportunities will exist on our website.
1: Well, I would like to thank you, Tony, for taking time out to talk to us today to tell us more about all the many programs that you guys offer at Native American Agriculture Fund.
2: Yes, one of the things that I want to close with is that the Native American Agriculture Fund beyond grant making does a lot of work in expanding opportunities for Native American uh, producers and making sure that we are building the infrastructure to support diversification of our communities and identify opportunities in areas of agriculture which in some instances doesn't include direct farming it could include other facets of agriculture which examples are uh, a tribe could engage in storage uh, a tribe could engage in marketing there's so many parts of agriculture outside of a direct you know uh, farmer on the ground uh, a tractor and that uh, has caused a lot of people to not realize the depth of agricultural opportunities and opportunities for students. We also helped establish a scholarship foundation recently called the Tribal Agriculture Fellowship. And that uh, entity just selected their new executive director. And very shortly, they will be announcing their first cohort of students. And those are students from across the country pursuing degrees in agriculture and again, agriculture defined broadly where they can enter all spaces. We need Native American voices in every corner of the world and in, especially in agriculture, as most of our communities have a very spiritual connection to our food and our
1: land. Oh, yes, definitely. Thank you for sharing that, Tony.
0: Coming up, we'll talk with Callie Turner. Support for 90.7 FM KRDP comes in part from Native Health, with two locations in Phoenix at 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, and at 2423 West Dunlap Avenue. Native Health is also located in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. Native Health provides primary medical, dental, behavioral health, WIC, and wellness services for the urban Native American community. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.org.
1: Back to Native Talk Arizona presented by Native Health and KRDB 90.7 FM. I'm host Lanasha Puati. On the phone with me is Callie Turner, writer, producer, puppeteer, and award-winning actress and director. Welcome to our show, Callie. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
3: So, I mean, other than what you just mentioned uh i'm also a mom i have two boys um i live in brooklyn new york so you know bustling urban life here really active in the art scene here my oldest son also is a performer um, but much more into video games um I, i'm really interested in like my passion is comedy But I use comedy as a form to really like spread awareness and enlightenment um, because I I feel that laughter helps the message go down. That's how I like to think of it, Um, because I really believe in informing people of like black and indigenous flights, really. And, you know, I think the best way to do that without like preaching at people is to mask my my messages in comedy. So that's that's a little about me.
1: Oh, that's very true. Well, it's a pleasure to have you today. And to get started, we can uh, deepen, in in further. How did you get involved in comedy?
3: Um, Well, it's funny, because when I when I think back on like my childhood, I'm like, oh, I was doing like comedy
1: stuff then and didn't
3: even realize it. Uh, I used to like, just do like little silly, stupid things, like make weird faces and ask my friends if they would like still be friends with me if I look like this. And like, as I think about it now, I'm like, Oh, that was like the beginning of me creating characters. Um, But when I, I really kind of delved into it formally was um, after I moved to Brooklyn because I'm, I'm originally, I was born in, in Boston and raised between Mashpee and Boston and Mashpee is a Wampanoag country. Uh, I'm Nipmuc, but my, a lot of my cousins and family members are Wampanoag, so I was raised down there with them. After moving to New York, being in grad school, I joined this group called American Candy, which is a, a sketch group out of Brooklyn, and that was what really, like, opened my eyes to, like, oh my goodness, like, this this world of comedy and sketch writing and, and, and characters and how fun it was to just, like, step into these fun, silly, or crazy characters and, you know, and hear the, hear the audience laugh and, and, and create these like fun, crazy moments. Once I got into that, uh, after doing a few shows, the, the woman, Holly Harper, who ran American Candy, asked me if I'd be interested in writing a sketch. And I was like, of course, yeah, I definitely want to write a sketch. Um, I said that to her. And then afterwards I was like, oh my God, I've never written a sketch before. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> um, because I've, I've always considered myself to be funny but now putting something down on paper that has to be funny was um a little bit of a challenge it was it was something that I had never done before and it was like oh no how do I like this has to be funny you know what I mean so I was a little nervous um but then hanging out with a friend of mine um Ernest Perry who was also a part of American Candy you know just kind of chopping it up with him talking about different things um we started joking about just different things and and out of that kind of birthed the idea of like the first sketch i ever wrote which is called god and that stands for um goons on demand because i i came up with the premise of like you know what if you're someone who is like conflict averse but you know there's things happening and you want to address them but you yourself are not someone who like would address them like i was like everyone should have that like you know, crazy cousin or uncle that they can, like, call to, like, handle something for them. So that birthed the idea of, like, you know, uh, made it an infomercial kind of, like, goons on demand. Um, But I really, I'm someone that takes craft, like, very seriously. So after writing that, and and it went over really well, I'm not going to lie. But after writing that, I decided I really wanted to take it serious. You know, I wanted to get more thorough with, with sketch writing and really learn the craft behind it. So I started taking classes at Upright Citizens Brigade here in New York. Um, So I took, like, sketch writing, improv, character, anything I could take. And they also, which was a huge help, they also offered a diversity scholarship um, because those classes are expensive. (laughs) So uh, without their scholarship, I definitely wouldn't have been able to take it. And then from there, I got on a house team at the pit called Steve's Hard Milk. And so it just allowed me to, like, really work my craft even more and work with an ensemble and, and get different ideas of what's funny, right? Because uh, the thing about comedy is, like, it's, it's kind of like, like art, right? Like, it's subjective. Like, what's funny to me might not be funny to you. So really just broadening my palette for, for comedy and what's considered funny. And then more recently... I finally got the opportunity to try out for Upright Citizens Brigade or UCB, and I got on a mod team. And so that was like the highlight of, I think, my 2019 or 2020, whenever pandemic came and stole everything away. <laughs> um, and so I think we did. And I was so I was on the first female mod team for UCB, the first and only here in New York. And we did, I think, two shows most, and then COVID hit and canceled out all of that, but within pandemic, I applied for the um, SNL scholarship at Second City, and out of, I think, over like 2,400 people, I was one of the people to receive it, so I actually spent the last five months in Chicago um, and did conservatory at Second City, so I got my um, certificate for that and then did a, a SNL Second City showcase where we had a couple of the SNL execs come and check us out and just been running ever since
1: (laughs) oh wow thank you for sharing that I didn't know there were so many aspects that go into writing a script or even like all of these stuff that you mentioned that goes into comedy
3: yeah yeah it's a lot right and that's that's that was my thought when when she first asked me to catch I was like oh yeah sure I could do that and then afterwards I was like oh my god how does how do you do this (laughs)
1: And now and and now you are involved with the Native American TV Writers Lab of 2022. Can you tell us more about it?
3: I guess writing has always really been something that I, that I loved um even you know thinking back to childhood I would write like little short stories, I'd write songs, things like that. Like I was always very active in the arts. And um the first time that I decided that I wanted to like write I saw a stage reading of Dominique Morso's play, Skeleton Crew, which has now like been on Broadway and all these kinds of things. Uh, and so that night when I saw her play and this this play that she had written about, you know, like growing up in Detroit and just kind of a slice of life piece, I thought about my upbringing like in Mashby on the res with the with the natives um, and just what that was like and you know powwows and, and all the fun I had with my cousins and, and things of that nature and I thought I want to share like I wanna share pieces of my life, you know what I mean? Like I want people to see this. And at that time I didn't know of any I didn't know of any Native American shows. Like Res Dogs was not on. There was no Rutherford Falls at that time. <laughs> so it was like, you know, I wanna create something and then also being black and indigenous, uh you know, like a minority within a minority, I was like, I wanna create something that really kinda of shows my experiences that maybe other people could relate to and like that night went home and started writing like my first ever play. Uh, and after a couple of readings of that, a lot of people were like, you know, your play kind of reads like a movie. And I was like, really, you know, they were and they talked about like the imagery. And then I, I started thinking like, you know what, well, what if I, what if I did start writing like TV and movies and um, had written a, a web series, a very poorly written web, web series when I look back at it now, <laughs> but right. Everything we all have to like grow and learn. Right. So, um, during pandemic, I really invested in becoming a stronger writer. I took two different screenwriting courses. Um, Both of them were free, which was amazing. Um, The first one was taught by someone who actually worked at UCB in LA. And then the second one was by Pagecraft. Um, They have a BIPOC scholarship. So I applied for that and I got it. So I did their, their lab, which was like 10 weeks. And in between that, I was watching pilots. I was reading any pilot I could get my hands on, especially for any shows that I really enjoyed. I, I wanted to get their pilots. I was like, you know, taking a million master classes on Zoom, um, workshops. And I did apply, I actually applied for the Native American TV Writers Lab last year, um, and I didn't get in. Um, and so that that really lit a fire underneath me to like, really dive all the way in. So. So once we were kind of in the thick of pandemic, I was in the thick of like trying to become a better writer, becoming a better writer. And that Web th-
1: series that I had written,
3: I rewrote it and submitted that to um, the Native American TV Writers Lab and, and got in.
1: Oh, wow. That is great. And going yeah. in- and going further into your heritage, I know you said that you were from uh, Wapena. Can you tell us more about how your Native American he- heritage influenced your comedy?
3: Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm actually I'm Nipmuc. I, I'm black and Nipmuc, and my cousins and um, aunts and things of that nature. They're all Wampanoag. And so like the Nipmucks, I always give this reference to people just so they have an idea of like where where we are or where we came from. So Nipmucks and the Wampanoags were the two clans that met the Pilgrims when they arrived. So I apologize to everybody from <laughs> Indian country. <laughs> Cause we didn't handle that the right way. We didn't, know, we didn't know better, uh, but yeah, so we were where, um, so I grew up 20 minutes from Plymouth, um, where, where they landed, uh, Plymouth rock. Right. And so growing up down the Cape, it was such a Cape Cod, uh, the Cape for short. Um, it was such a, an interesting experience because the Cape, it's very much like growing up in the country, you know, like, or at least when I was coming up, like, I feel like the last time I've gone down there's there been so much development. But when I was coming up, there were barely any streetlights. You know what I mean? The store was like miles down the road. Um, You you had to either have a car or know somebody or, you know, there wasn't a lot of public transportation. It was very rural, extremely rural. Um, And so growing up, I'm one of six kids on my mother's side. And then my cousins who grew up literally right next door to us, who um we were raised more like brothers and sisters um there are five of them and we're all very close in age so there was you know there was we were like a little gang (laughs) as far as like you know there were so many of us um and so we just did you know we did what you do when like when you were a kid before there was like internet was blown up and there was like you know computers on your phones and stuff but so we played outside and we, we were in the woods and my grandfather um was a hunter. And so he would, he would hunt deer and turtle and squirrel. And he said it all tasted like chicken, which I thought was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so I remember watching him in the yard, like scaling fit, like cleaning and scaling fish. And, you know, we'd go to the rod and gun club and you would see the deer hanging upside down, you know, to, to drain it, um, before they would like, you know, cure the hide and and stuff like that. And so like, I was very much, I very much grew up in the culture of like Native American life. You know what I mean? Um, going to powwows every year. Da- uh, I used to dance. Uh, I used to dance fancy dance and, um, just like very much in it, like storytelling. We, w- they would play fireball at the, at the powwows every year, which for those of you that don't know what fireball is, it's like a, it's like a mix between soccer and football, but the ball is like literally on fire. Oh, and wow. there's Two teams. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's, a- you've never seen fireball it's definitely a sight to see and so there's two teams and there's like the shirts and the skins although oftentimes they're both teams will really be shirtless um and so you can pick the ball up or you can kick it and it whichever side you know gets the most goals wins and so you know and it's so funny because you'll hear the crowd screaming pick it up pick it up even though this ball is literally on fire (laughs) And so like the, but the point of it is that you play for medicine. So you, you want to touch the ball because every time you touch the ball that offers up medicine to someone in your family that is sick. So oftentimes the players play with someone in mind, um, that they're hoping to, to send, um, wellness to. And it's so interesting, cause you always know, like the next day at Powell, you would always knew who played because their hands would be all blistered and burnt. Um, <laughs> but, but it was definitely a, a sight to see. And so it's interesting. So yeah, like on on that side I grew up very much rural, res native life. And then there was my then there's like my father's side where um he lives in Bo- he still lives in Boston. Um and coming up with him it was like more, you know, he him him living in Boston was like me going to the city, even though it's a small city, um it is a city. And there I was more versed in like my my black side you know going to kwanzaa and eating like mac and cheese and collard greens as opposed to like you know uh indian tacos and stuff so it was a very i I feel like i had a very colorful and cultural childhood coming up
1: and um Uh, callie how does being a mom influence your comedy my
3: oftentimes my kids show up in my work, <laughs> um, like even in even in the pilot that I'm writing now for the Native American uh, Media Alliance Lab, I have a I have a character who is a single mom, and so I have two kids. I have a 15 year old and a three year old, and so uh, I have a character in the piece that's a single mom, and she has she has four kids, um, and she often has to like bring them to work. Um, one specifically is called is his name in the piece is Little Thunder and in real life he would be my my youngest son because my my youngest son is definitely a ball of energy <laughs> uh and like it, it's interesting because you have to you have to find balance between like work work life and mom life because you know for the moms out there you know that there's no pause button <laughs> there's no like putting you know dinner on hold or something like that cuz then you're going to have little people extremely upset with you so like just finding the balance between being a mom, and, you know, doing the work, which can be challenging, you know, especially when you have, like, tight deadlines, and then there's, like, other things that pop up, like, dentist appointments, or, you know, a kid gets sick, or, you know, life, life happening, um, but then it's also fun, too, because I, I put them in my projects oftentimes, like, there's, there's oftentimes, like, a character, at least one, that is, like, the, um I guess, the outline of one of my one of my kids.
1: <laughs> oh, that is awesome, and I bet they really look forward to seeing those skits as well. Yeah, they do. And
3: and and my oldest, because he's old enough to know. Like, so when I'm like the other day, I was on the phone talking to somebody about the the pilot that I'm writing, and I mentioned Little Thunder, and he was like, "Oh, you mean Elias?" Because that's <laughs> my youngest son's name. He was like, "That's Elias." So like, he knows now. He's like, "Oh yeah, he could point out like, oh that's me, that's that's my brother." Like. <laughs> and, and he's funny because even though sometimes he doesn't want to be bothered he's like well how come you didn't put me in it
1: <laughs> I think he feels a little entitled now <laughs> and Callie <laughs> how can someone learn more about your comedy and your upcoming projects and how can someone contact you if they have further questions
3: um, I, the best way is to pro- probably um, IG so on Instagram, I'm at Madam Starlight M D A M Starlight S T A R L I G H T. I also have a website www.kylieyturner.com. Um, I'm on Twitter as at Kylie Y Turner, but honestly, the the fastest because I use I use Instagram much more than I use the other social medias. Uh, so Instagram. Or um, if you want to directly contact me, you can send me a message through my website.
1: Well, I would like to thank you, Kelly, for taking time out to talk to us today. Thank
3: you so much. I'm so, I'm, I'm, I'm so appreciative to be here.
0: Up next, we'll chat with Brad Callhammer. Support for 90.7 FM KRDP comes in part from Native Health with two locations in Phoenix, 4041 North Central Avenue, Building C, and at 2423 West Dunlap Avenue. Native Health is also located in Mesa at 777 West Southern Avenue near the corner of Southern and Extension Roads. COVID vaccinations, boosters, and testings are available at all locations for anyone over the age of 5. For more information, call 602-279-5262 or visit our webpage at nativehealthphoenix.com org.
1: Welcome back to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and KRDB 90.7 FM. I'm host Lanasha Puati. On the phone with me is Brad Callhammer, a Native American artist known for his multimedia practice, ranging from sculptures and painting to performance and music. Welcome to our show, Brad.
4: Well, thank you, and it's an honor to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey as a multimedia artist and musician?
4: Um, sure. We've got, to, uh, we've got to go back to, uh, well, quite a ways back to Tucson, Arizona, where, which is where I was uh, born and raised. Then I, I moved with my family uh, up to the Midwest around, I guess I was about 12 years old. And then at, uh, at the age of around 24, 25, I started getting uh, restless and I wanted to move out to New York City to become a uh, professional artist. And, and now all through my youth, I, I would, had been drawing a lot and uh, you know, I'd go out to trips uh, like I had cousins in Marana, uh, north of Tucson and, and sort of hang out and I was drawing. Apparently, I was, people said I was drawing a lot of horses. I, I don't remember that, but... Uh, Anyway, Marana was a great, kind of a great, wild place to grow up in.
1: Oh, wow. And how did you begin your journey as a multimedia artist?
4: So that happened much later. You know, when I think of multimedia, I I like to say multidiscipline because I've always, well, drawn and then picked up uh, oil painting in college. Uh, That was uh, Oshkosh University and then did some uh, welding and some sculpture and just whatever I really chose to do in college. Uh, at that time, I was also playing in a almost a full time road band. We were playing sort of like a country country rock thing. So I came by that multidiscipline nature very honestly. Always been playing, drawing, painting, and then when I moved to New York, uh, I started getting involved with uh, sculpture, and then of course. Uh, you know, given the big audiences out here, I, I started performing more and playing in uh, in clubs here, but uh, quickly got involved in the downtown. It uh, was like a kind of reggae rock scene downtown here on Ludlow, Ludlow Street. For those of you who know New York, Ludlow was kind of a famous uh, Lower East Side Street.
1: And what period of time was this?
4: You want to date me, don't you? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this was a long time ago for some of you. Uh, Nineteen eighty-two is when I when I uh, arrived in New York, and I'd always been, you know, on the Lower East Side. So, um, you know, at that time, New York is a sort of dark, gritty place. You know, the economic downturn. But the good thing about that is that you know the rents were very cheap, and artists were everywhere. In Wisconsin, I really didn't have i mean there was a bit of support but nothing like uh, new york city and i immediately just kind of threw myself into uh, uh the milieu of downtown and the sort of bohemian uh, you know nightlife i had a daytime job i was working at Topps chewing gum as a, as a graphic designer i was uh brought over to this other Sort of more creative department by Artie Spiegelman, who who had done mouse At that time, he was just working on mouse which was the, the super uh, soon to be very famous uh, graphic novel. He was a big underground comics uh, guru who also published Raw magazine, and he would bring Raw in. And, was, and for me, coming in from you know the Southwest and the Midwest, this was just a a, a really interesting kind of crazy time and it was a very expressionistic kind of wild drawing that i was immediately attracted to because it reminded me very much of the kind of the way i was playing guitar which was you know sort of a bar band kind of nightlife thing
1: and um were there any influencers that influenced maybe your art or your music Uh, well i would say
4: you know growing up in tucson uh just in terms of the atmosphere it would be Tucson, but then when I moved to uh, Tucson and the Arizona desert, I should say, but then when I moved to uh, New York, I really got involved with that downtown creative. Um, I mean I, an early influence probably would have been you know somebody like Ted de and then going out to uh, the Santave mission and uh, and just sort of seeing all of these uh, i don't know even even you know the ancient rock art all the this, this stuff I was doing in hiking it all kind of sat in the back of my brain, and then unleashed itself as I started working uh, fairly seriously in a committed way in New York City, various studios.
1: And speaking of that, how or have you had any defining moment in your career that inspired you to go full-time into multimedia art?
4: Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, uh, the one that comes first to mind was, I think, 19... 91, I think it's was. Uh, I was already, work- I had worked at Topps Chewingham about eight or nine years, and that was a full time, you know, bit of a grind. Although my time there was very formative in the sense that I was working with all these underground cartoonists who were also looking at, you know, other forms of art, not just, you know, typical Western painting, because they're, they're very progressive in their visions and political as well. I guess it would be quitting that job and being able to uh, go full time. And a week later, I know I quit. And a week later, I was invited to a show in Amsterdam, which was my first European kind of group show thing. Uh, another giant influence would have been 1996, was, which was the American Indian ledger drawing uh, show at, uh, at the drawing center here. And that was co-curated by Gerald McMaster, who's I think uh, Canada's pretty much preeminent you know, native curator who also just contributed uh, uh, a really good, nice text for my Swap Me catalog, that, as I'm currently showing in, uh, in Scottsdale right now at the uh, Scottsdale Contemporary Museum. And that show's called Swap Me. So it's, it's all sort of coming full circle.
1: And can you tell us more about your pieces that are currently at different exhibits?
4: I can. I, so I have two big shows up in Arizona right now. I opened... Uh, uh, swap me at the uh, Scottsdale Contemporary Art Museum, and so it's this idea of of uh, you know assigning a kind of personhood or or uh, to to these objects, you know these sort of random used objects. I, I myself am adopted, so I'm, I'm I'm in a way, it's a it's a self portrait. But when you see the show, you won't you will not think self portrait, as it has a uh, uh, a number of uh, new works I've created specifically for the show. Uh, one of them is uh, I, something I call the zombie botanicals, which are cactus parts uh, which I've picked over up over the last couple of years and you know fashioned into this kind of zombie garden I have painted rocks um, one of the features is a very large uh, wire dream catcher which is uh, came out of SF Momo in a collection in the permanent collection uh, they loaned it to the Scottsdale show along with this 28 foot house trailer which I've Kind of made uh, into a, a sort of uh, art office. Um, the second big show is in, it's more of a survey and has some historic uh, reach, which is down at the Tucson Museum of Art, and that's called 11:59 to Tucson, which is a play on 3:10 to Yuma. I was born at 11:59 uh, in Tucson many years ago, so it's as a kind of my guess, return to uh, my birthplace.
1: Oh, wow. That is awesome. And speaking of your shows, the the one in Scottsdale will remain until October 9th of this year. And then the Tucson one is September 25th of this year. Is that correct?
4: Correct. Yeah. They're both running through the summer, um, you know, started out in the spring. And I'm just really happy to, uh, you know, to have both of these homecoming shows. I should mention that I had had shown uh, at the Smoker at the Scottsdale Museum in 2004. Uh, And that was a show called Let's Walk West. And um, one of the interesting things about that is it was my first, or I think maybe the first, uh, institutional collaboration between the Heard Museum and Smoka. And the Heard Museum uh, let me borrow ledger drawings, which I then used in my show. Um, And then that traveled out east to Boston. But I was really happy to get that incredible historic material.
1: Brad, how has your Indigenous background influenced your art?
4: You know, so my situation is is you know quite different from most people. As I'm adopted, uh, and uh, really, I I've tried a couple you know various searches over the years and, and hadn't been able to find my birth parents. Um, Although you know interesting things do happen when I get up to like south Dakota uh rapid City and things like that. And I think it's largely just you know the way I look or I am and and the response um that I get you know from from uh from people around there but I think in terms of the art career um not having a specific tribal identity I didn't really identity, I didn't really feel tethered to a to a particular sort of, you know, craft or tradition, which then really freed me towards more of a multidiscipline uh, career. So I, I just felt free to borrow, borrow from, you know, whether it was north northwest coast or plains or uh, you know, even some things in the southwest. And so uh, I have a show actually yet a third show up at uh, uh, Garth Greening Gallery here in New York City, which opened a few weeks ago, called uh, Fort Gossam USA. And if you go online and you look, or if you're, you know, can get to see the show, you'll see the latest works. It's really a kind of combination hybrid of all these various native influences and art forms and histories uh, going into, I largely painted on tarps, which I was stapling on the back of my trailer house. I could... Uh, uh, I live in a trailer park actually. And, and, uh, I work outside and then I was lucky enough to get a residency down in Tucson. So some of the show was made in Tucson, Mesa, and some of it in New York city here. But I think it's really, um, you know, that constant search for identity, but now in this stage of career, I, I feel you know pretty confident and I've, I've probably done over 30 shows now. So, it, it, you know, it is what it is. This is my situation. I do consider, uh, you know, the adopted native as a, as really part of the culture. I don't see it as a side. So, uh, you know, and I think that's always been a, a bit of an internal struggle for me and, and for others who, you know, may not see, see that position the way I do, but, uh, you know, here I am.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. And speaking of you completing 30 shows, how has your art evolved
4: well, you know I've been doing the the eleven fifty nine to Tucson show is is three decades of work. so naturally, anyone if you're doing something long enough, I don't really care what it is you, you'll you will change, you will evolve you'll get you'll get better you'll you'll throw some things out that aren't working, you'll adopt new things uh, you learn the skills as you need them. and so I think. My vision has become more, it's wider for sure. Um, I just uh, have more resources to do things that I want, um, you know, whether it be a music video or there's two music videos down at the Tucson show. And, uh, and I also have a studio here in New York city. So I can maintain two different studios. I also do uh, residencies, which can be adds to your uh, vision because you're, you know, you're, going to a place you're not really sure of and you have to create which i think is a really unique challenge that i like doing
1: oh yeah definitely and i didn't know that so much work and time go goes involved into all of your shows so thank you for sharing that um brad where can someone view your art and how can they contact you if they have further questions
4: you know i have things up and around i think it's just uh probably following me on instagram you know i I try and keep that updated um but um yeah i'm in a number of collections i just as an artist you don't always know if the works out you know in the museums so you know i can't really be that specific Uh, but i do have three big shows up now and uh, it's, it's great to be honest
1: oh yes and what is your instagram so that way we can go to your social medias Okay, uh, is this my name?
4: Brad Callhammer, B R A D K A H L H A M E R. Uh, I'm in the process of building a new website, so that should be up and running soon. And I'll have a a music page. That's also a component to what I did. I was actually I did a gig at the Congress Hotel as a sort of uh, you know companion to the show, and then. the uh, Swap meet show had a stage built out on the trailer. So, uh, for the opening, um, I hired Dirt Road, a great Navajo country band. Uh, and he played the opening, and I, I thought they were great. Uh, you know, I really can't say enough, super authentic. Um, and, you know, they just capture the, the vibe that I was going for. And then I came up about a month later and did a show as well. And I may go back in September. We'll see if I can get back to uh, Arizona and do something. But, uh, yeah, I'm around. I'm out there.
1: That's awesome. We'll definitely follow you on Instagram and also keep a lookout for your updated website. But I would like to thank you, Brad, for taking time out to talk to us today.
4: Okay, thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's a real honor. And, um, whoa, I miss Arizona.
0: Uh, yeah. What can
4: I say? But I will be
1: back. Awesome. We look forward to seeing you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to Native Talk Arizona, presented by Native Health and 90.7 FM KRDP. Our executive producer is Susan Levy. Sound engineer is Javier Quiroga. And our host is Lanasha Puati. We hope you will tune in again next week. If you have any questions, please reach us at AZ at listen to krdp.com.